0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for joining me here today. Today, I've got Brian McTernan on the podcast. And if you're not familiar with Brian, Brian is a very influential, inspirational person who is really well known for working in the punk and the hardcore and the emo scenes. And he's worked on so many records that I absolutely love and grew up with. He's worked with bands like Thrice, The Movie Life, Monine, Bane. Circus Survive, Strike Anywhere. And on top of that, he was the singer of the legendary hardcore band Battery, which they're just amazing. He's still working on music himself, too. He currently has a new project called Be Well, and that's an awesome record that you should definitely check out as well. This conversation was a ton of fun, and I think you'll get a lot of excitement listening to it because he just has a really fresh approach to records. And I think it's so different than everything else that you currently hear on the radio and stuff. And as we go through this interview, you'll you'll get a better sense of why that is and what his philosophy is on how to make these records stand out from the pack and how we capture so much energy and feel out of the artists that he works with. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Let's just jump right into it. Brian McTernan, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How you doing, man? Hey, how are you? Doing great. So for people who might not know your story, can you give us a little bit of that background in terms of how you got into music and ultimately got into the world of production?
1: I got really into music when I was young. My parents didn't listen to a lot of music, but my older brother got me into like punk and new wave and stuff when I was in like fourth grade. And then the short version is I lucked out and met this. We had a neighbor that was like a Hardcore, punky, skinheady type dude. And my parents really liked him. And he introduced my brother and I to all sorts of like cool punk and hardcore and started taking us to shows when I was in fifth grade. So it was, it was, I mean, I just kind of got started early. And then, you know, when you're like at these punk and hardcore shows and you're a little kid, people talk to you. And I ended up meeting a lot of people that were in bands and, um, and then, I mean, the, the short version is I ended up dating this girl, and her brother played drums in a band, and I used to go watch them rehearse. And that's what really gave me the bug for wanting to write songs and learn how to play. At first, I learned drums and then guitar, and then eventually started singing. So when I was in eighth grade, that was the first time I recorded a record, and it was, um, it was cool. It was like an eight-track um, like real to real studio, and this it was this guy Barrett Jones who went on to produce the first Foo Fighters record. He was the sound guy for Scream, which was Dave Grohl's band before Nirvana. So people have said that the studio was in the basement of Dave Grohl's house at the time, but I don't know that to be a hundred percent true. But <laughs> I like I like the story. Either way, so I started playing music, and interestingly, I was never the recording guy in any of the early bands I was in. The guitar player in my first band, Battery, was this guy, Ken Olden, and he was really into recording. And then the next band I was in, Ashes, the drummer is Matt Squ- was Matt Squire, who was produced Panic, the disco, and all these things. So he had an 8-track in his basement, and he was kind of the default recording guy and then we went to atlanta when i was in 17 to record and matt happened to need to leave to see his brother so for the first time i was like the guy (laughs) like i was the guy in the band that was responsible and um it was the first time i ever sat behind a console and like touched the faders and like pushed the buttons and it was just like Oh my God! This is what I want to do with my life. So I just kind of like I had I had dropped out of high school to tour, and um, I really just wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. So I had like I was kind of lucky in that it was it was at the beginning of the era of like consumer grade recordings that like ADATS had just come out and the Mackie, you know eight bus 24 channel console. So it was probably the one of the first times that without really spending a fortune, you could actually like, buy enough gear to do something. So I I ended up buying like a little Mackie mixer and two ADATs and kind of combined that with some of the stuff that Matt had and started recording bands. And then I ended up moving to Boston and set up the the first iteration of salad days was in the basement of a house with like i had six roommates and i slept on the floor in the dining room and i worked at a video store during the day and every night i came home and recorded bands so but it you know interestingly Back then, podcasts like this and the internet wasn't a thing really. You know what I mean? I mean, it was a thing, but not the way that it is now. So I didn't even know anybody really that recorded bands. So it was all just trial and error, trial by fire kind of. And um, you know, it, the, the thing is I, I think you it, it I think it's I think it's so cool that you can like go on YouTube and go to podcasts and read all this stuff about how people are doing things. But I also feel lucky that I kind of like lived in a time when that wasn't too, because I, I've, I developed some, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. So I was just winging it and you come when you're approaching it that way, you come across things that are really different. Like I realized really early that like, I didn't have gear so learning to tune the drums really well was the biggest most important thing to like actually getting it to sound good you know and and getting the drummer to like play things that sounded good and hit hard and not have the beats so busy really was the way that I was able with the limited gear to kind of like get the drums to sound really good pre sleet and you know all this (laughs) i don't think i I don't think i used a drum trigger ever until maybe like the mid 2000s so i mean it just was a really it was a it was a different time and sometimes i were not worried but i mean i get a lot of stuff to mix and i do think that there's like a component of people jumping straight to the like midi and the drumogog trigger like that solution way before like learning how to tune the drums and understanding phase and mic position and things things like that i feel like people are just kind of like well i'm going to trigger this anyway it doesn't it doesn't matter and i i still think it does matter
0: yeah there's definitely something to be said for just learning the craft of getting things right at the source and then using those other tools as a way to augment what you've got, but not, not necessarily replace what you've got, just, you know, get that right at the source and use it just to kind of fill in the gaps, I guess, right? Well, and I mean, the thing is,
1: I just think if you get if you have an amazing drum, I mean, there's so much nuance to a great drummer that if you don't have like strong source material to begin with, you're really never gonna get 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 it. It's not you know you can make it sound professional, but are you gonna have all that color and character that's like actually happened, documented? And I, I think that like I know for me, when I get stuff that's recorded, really poorly, which is more often than not, <laughs> you definitely give up. I mean, you can make it sound good now in a way that you couldn't a long time ago, but I think that you do you do lose some things.
0: Absolutely. It's uh, it's cool to hear that you were in a band with Matt. Uh, Matt, I actually had him on the podcast a while ago, and he's such a cool dude. So did you learn a lot of your engineering skills from watching him? Is that kind of just where it started? or I don't want to say in
1: the reverse because Matt Matt, Matt and I started playing together in bands when we were in ninth grade, and he had a four-track and then an eight-track. So, like, every free moment we had, we were together in his basement, writing, recording, listening to music, talking about stuff. But he didn't get into actually, like, recording bands the way that I did until, well, until four years after I was doing it. So, like, he went to college <laughs> you know and and I started recording bands all the time and then around that time like I moved to Boston to do the studio and Matt went to BU and we started we were originally in a band called Ashes together and then we were in a band called Milltown together and Milltown signed to Warner Brothers and we went into the studio with this awful producer and made a terrible record that and broke up <laughs> so at that point I moved back to DC and Matt was just, like, writing songs and doing stuff like that. And then um, I had a lot of records that I was doing, and he ended up moving down to D.C. And for a, probably, like, I don't want, I want to say maybe a year or year and a half, he was, like, I don't want to say he was my assistant, but he was assisting me with records. He was helping me with Pro Tools stuff and editing and things of that nature. and um, And then at that point he wasn't really producing records on his own i that much and he ended up getting a studio space and was helping me but also starting to produce records and i think that that panic at the disco record was maybe like the third or fourth record he ever did <laughs> you know what i mean and he killed it i mean he he's always he was a really like we're really different in like our approach but like I I definitely think that like the two of us together kind of like kept pushing each other you know like the like with songwriting and how we listen to music and all of that I feel like I do like I don't I didn't learn like a lot of engineering from that but I do think the two of us both being really talented and driven pushed each other to the place where we both ended up having you know, fairly successful production careers.
0: That's awesome. You had talked about how you and Matt have different approaches to things. How would you define your approach to working on records?
1: I mean, like, like when we were in bands and playing, I was always into like punkier stuff and more not, I don't want to say like raw per se, but Matt always had much more of a pop sensibility. Like when we'd be on the road trips, I'd have like Dag Nasty in and then like he'd drive and he'd Listen to like Seal and Alanis <laughs> Morissette. <laughs> Not that he didn't listen to punk, but I mean that just gives you a uh, you know yeah. uh, like we were definitely like he is was always like a big Prince guy and like loved the Grateful Dead and was like I was like pretty straight punk and like new wave like The Cure, The Smiths, Depeche Mode, and then like hardcore. So we but i think it was like a really good combination especially when we were writing together because i always had like a really good mind for like the color and the feel of what a band should be and then matt was just like this virtuoso musical genius type guy and and it was a i feel like i i picked up some of that and he probably picked up a little bit of you know what i was doing and and i think that um you know, it, we had, like, really great chemistry, and um, interestingly, he ended up buying my studio from me, and that's where he still works now. So, I had a studio in Beltsville, Maryland. That's where we started the Monine record, and I sold that to Matt and built a new studio in Baltimore, And that's, um, so anyway,
0: that's awesome. Very cool.
1: Yeah. So he's still there. So he went to LA for a
0: while and then he's back in, in Maryland now. Super cool. So you had mentioned, um, earlier just about kind of the importance of trial and error and how much of a role that played in your process of learning and kind of just experimenting with lots of instruments. And you had also mentioned that you played a lot of instruments as well. So how do you feel that your ability to play like a variety of different instruments has influenced the work that you do now. It's given me
1: like a sense, like an, an an understanding of all of the elements that go into a song. I mean, like the being able to listen to it and understand the nuance and the components and how it all kind of sits together, it would be hard. I mean, I think that there are probably people that don't play that are able to like that, that maybe that's even a benefit for them that they're they have a distance from it and they're just listening with their ears and not thinking about all of the little components the way that i i might be processing it but um i think it's it helps understand what's happening and also how to communicate with the artist um and understand like what 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 they're doing.
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense it's got i like what you said too about the people who don't know all of those instruments it kind of sounds like the experience you went through where you're doing the trial and error of learning how to mic things up like and and do do all that stuff organically at the source. I think the people who don't know the instruments, they're kind of approaching it more from a fan perspective rather than like a musician technical perspective as well. So it does give you that variety.
1: Well, and it's interesting you say that because I, I think all the time one, I, I can't remember how it happened. But one day I had lunch with Seymour Stein, who was like signed Madonna and the Smiths and all these things. And we were talking and he was like, man, you know, you don't don't want perfect pitch. You don't want like, you want rock ears is what he said. (laughs) (laughs) You want to listen to it and just feel it and not be so worried. Is that like perfectly in tune? Is that perfectly this? Is this perfectly that? Like, you want to just be able to like listen as a fan and i actually have to like pull myself back sometimes and be like wow like i you know like i just need to listen to this as music and not like staring at the fucking pro tool screen is like so bad i mean it just really does you know change the the way you hear things sometimes
0: yeah that makes that makes sense yeah sometimes you gotta just Like, turn off the Pro screen if you can, or something like that, and just listen. Well, the thing, the
1: other thing that's weird is like now, because people, you know, take an approach that's so like canned, and like, so like, nothing is like, real <laughs> you know at time i mean like you know pe- like with all the auto tune and the beat detectiving and all that like it just it 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 really changes the way that you hear things like i think all the time about like how many like if i listen to like uh guns and roses sweet child of mine i'm like oh the bass is so sharp <laughs> you know what i mean but <laughs> clearly that wasn't a problem yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I'm actually like where I'm at in my like career at, and like what I'm looking for in records. Like I, I try and stay as far away from the fixing shit as as I can and tolerate it in some ways because I just feel like there's so few opportunities to have things stand apart, and one of the few, one of the few opportunities that you have is feel. I mean, that's something. If you can play it and play it with soul and play it with character, no computer is going to do that. I mean, it's not like, so, like, I mean, I, I get a lot of sessions and it's really clear that someone played it one time and then it was looped. And, you know, I don't, if I'm doing that, it's because there's a problem, like if I'm Grid editing anything ever, it's because something went terribly wrong. Like I really try and stay as far away from all of that as possible. And part of it is that all of the records that like that I've been involved with that have actually stood the test of time, it didn't do any of that on. And all of the records that I was like, oh, these guys want it to be like this. So, you know, are like, oh, cool. It's exciting when it comes out. And then it just kind of fades into the the distance because you kind of you know you, you just make it so samey and and i also think like now we're in an era of like everything sounds professional like I, i'm not worried i like i don't think like is this professional sounding is this good sounding like i i want it to be like cool and different and like notable not just pro <laughs> because pro is like you know, you can, you can use your Kemper and your triggers and your autotune and, you know, all your stuff and it's going to make it professional, but is it going to make it something that is notable and stands apart from everything else? And I, for me, it it doesn't work. Like when I take that approach, the records aren't as good.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I was curious about that because, you know, they're like, obviously you've been at this for quite some time and, like you said, a lot of your earlier records, the ones that were possibly the ones that, the, the ones that did stand the test of time, they didn't have all that editing. But then I feel like at the same time too, because the industry is shifting to such a hyper edited, manipulated sound in a, in a way, like there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of expectation from bands sometimes that that's what they're going to get at the, at the end of working with an engineer or that's what they need to get. So how do you strike that balance between what's, quote-unquote, like the modern professional standard versus something that is a little bit more organic and natural. Honestly, I try
1: and not work with people that want records that sound like that. I mean, I just don't do, I have no interest in making records that sound like other people's records. I just, it's, and if there's an expectation that that's what you have to do to be competitive, then, you know, ultimately, eventually I'll just not be making records (laughs) you know what i mean like i i'm just not i am not i didn't get to where i am in my life and my career by trying to be someone else like and and i think that bands that do that as well try and be someone else aren't they don't stand the test of time you know like so for me i just i want to make records that feel and sound a way that makes me excited and makes me want to listen to them not just once but over and over and I want to listen to them and pick up like oh shit I didn't realize that that was there you know and like a little bit of push and pull and a little bit of you know I mean I love that I I think it's great and it's so interesting how different things are. Like when Matt Squire and I were like signed to Milltown and Warner Brothers, back then, when we were talking to producers, even using a click was like controversial, <laughs> right? It was kind of like, oh my God, they used a click. Now it's like half the bands don't even rehearse without a click. And records haven't gotten better. So that's the thing about like if someone says to me, oh, oh, I want this to be competitive or I want, there's an expectation or there's a this or that. I mean, all this fucking art. I mean, the cool thing is like, you can go to Taylor Larson and have the most perfect, beautiful, like pristine, cleaned up, amazingly powerful thing. And that's what he does. That isn't what I do. And like, trying to be someone you're not and trying to, like, have what you, what inspires you influenced as an artist by expectations and the industry never ends well, I don't think.
0: It's interesting, too, because I think that that is one of the things that actually really does differentiate you from a lot of other engineers. And that makes sense, because, like, you're right. Like there's a million other producers that are doing the super hyper edited thing and you know, you're going to get a great, great record from them. But to have someone like yourself who focuses more on like just making awesome sounding records, like really that's the core of it all, right? Like you need to have great songs before you even try to hyper edit it and everything. I mean,
1: I will take a shitty recording with great songs every fucking day, every day. (laughs) And I, it's funny because you, you you kind of, you kind of realize, I mean, I also think that personally, with all of, like, almost everything I hear sounds almost exactly the same. Like, everybody's using the same shit, everybody's using the same tricks and reading the same things and using the preset sets. So, like, one of the things that, that, it doesn't worry me, but one of the things that I see with a lot of like younger producers that, that, I, that I know and come across is like what, how much of an assembly line their record banking is. It's like, oh, this is what I do, <laughs> right? But, I mean, the band and what is right for the band should drive the process, not the producer's assembly line. Right? So, for me, if I'm in the studio with Turnstile and I'm trying to shove them into the same box that Strike Anywhere would be in, or Hot Water Music, or Circus Survive, I'm doing everybody involved a disservice, right? So, if I'm not listening to the songs, and working with the band, and understanding not only what my vision for the record is, but what their vision for the record is, and every decision from that point on, once you have the, like, this is what we're doing, this is the goal, should be based around that ultimate vision. And when I look back at, like, the records that I, I've made that that I feel like still really stand up, they were all made in such different ways. Like, Cave and Jupiter was tracked entirely live with one overdub in one song on the whole record to tape. You know what I mean? But then... Strike Anywhere, Exit English, we did in this crazy way where we tracked like all of the slow parts to a click and then all of the fast parts without the click and dumped it all to tape and then assembled it together. And had I done that with Kaven, it would have been terrible. Had I done what we did with Kaven with Strike Anywhere, it would have been terrible. And so... When I, you know, like, I'd have, I have a lot of friends that are producers and a lot of the younger ones have, they have all their templates, they have all their presets, they have all their stuff. They're opening up the session with all these decisions made for the artist before a note is played. And to me, that is a recipe for really professional, solid high-quality recordings every time, right? You, you control all of it. You know exactly what you're getting. There's no risk, and it's always going to be awesome-sounding. So, if that's what you want, that's a really safe approach. I don't care. I don't want safe. I don't want predictable. And I am 100% willing to have some records that don't come out as well as others in order to get the home runs. And I'm cool with that. (laughs) You You know what I mean? Like, I don't have any issue with it. And it isn't like I've gotten to that place by having made hundreds of records and being able to look back at them and really, like, understand what made them all special. And what made them special is Giving every band their own approach. So it's like, would you make a Rage Against the Machine record in the same way that you would make a Cure record? Definitely not. But people are taking that approach and then they're cheating artists of their own opportunity to create a new sound nobody's ever heard before.
0: It's funny you mentioned the Rage Against the Machine reference because, like, even back then when they first debuted, On all of their records, they always had that little quote on the back of them that, like, this album does not contain any samples and was recorded live or something. Like, they have something to that effect on every record. And that was in, like, 1994. So, like, you know, think about how...
1: But I think like a Brendan O'Brien who produced... I I think Garth did the first one and Brendan O'Brien did the rest. Brendan O'Brien, to me, is like the gold standard in a lot of ways because it's like you can hear that he can do a Kill Switch Engage record, a Rage Against the Machine record, a Pearl Jam record, and a Bruce Springsteen record, and none of them sound or feel remotely similar. If you think that Brendan O'Brien is going... I have my drum kit sound (laughs) and I have my guitar sims and I have my system where we do the drums and we beat detected them and then we do the bass in note by note and tune it and then paste it and then we do one bar of guitar and we copy it. If you think a guy like that is doing, I I mean, I don't know him. There's no fucking chance that's how those records were made. (laughs) So what's interesting to me is how people are approaching records has really very little to do with how the records they love were made. So like all these people reference Rage Against the Machine in the studio as like, oh, I love that sound. But then it's like, Okay, let's beat detective the drums and trigger him and <laughs> you don't get that sound by having that. So I I totally understand why people do it and 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 I I I just worry that if someone tried to make a Metallica record with the same approach that they tried to make an R.E.M. record or a Smiths record, it just the world wouldn't have All these, not just like amazing records, but like culturally defining records that like change the landscape of how people hear music and what they want to hear out of music. I don't, it's so rare to me that I hear anything that sounds notably different ever. And a lot of that has to do with like, the ability to get music out so fast, I think, and have it sound professional, I think is very driven. Like, bands come in to make records well before they're ready to make the records. And you don't have to be that good if the engineer can make it sound like you are. So people that are not really true artists with, like, notable feel are making records that sound very professional. And that just starts to change how people hear things, how people approach making records, and ultimately, I think it's not bad, but I just believe that there's a lane for people that want to do things differently for sure,
0: yeah, it's it's um i I had a conversation with Garth a while ago, and we were talking about that first rage record, and he he said that, like, you know, he got hired to do this gig and check out this band, and he saw them live and was like fuck, these guys are amazing live. Like, we have to have this energy because I can't make records like I've made before with Rage, you know? So it like it really goes to show you, you need to find that thing that makes a band special and preserve that and capture it in the recording process.
1: Yeah, and I, I also think that you also have to understand the project. Like, I'm not saying I've never copied and pasted or gritted it or triggered. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying that is not a part of... My overall f- spiritual, f- philosophic take on making records. My my overall thing is identify what are the s- strengths of the band and what are the weaknesses of the band, right? And then focus on making taking the strengths to another level and then bringing up the weaknesses and then have an overall vision for what the record will feel like in the end, and every decision you make from the beginning to the end has to be a component stepping you closer and closer to the ultimate vision. And if you're not making those decisions based on the songs, the artists, their artistry, their strengths, and the, including their vision into it,
0: I just feel like the records are never gonna be special so for sure so then how much of a role does the process of pre-production play in your records it's the most critical thing that happens on
1: my rec i mean i i will i would rather spend more time on pre-production and track fast any day because i feel like it 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 the songs really really can come to light and and the you know the it i i like to strip the songs down to like sitting in the control room playing them on acoustic guitars and really start to understand the the progressions and the arrangements and the habits that bands have because often you can start to pick up on tendencies and sometimes you can start to solve you can figure out a problem in 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 one place and then it's like oh wow okay i get what all this stuff needs the other thing that helps is before you're ever recording you really understand the songs not just like as a listener but like you really understand the 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 components of it and the band's vision because you've spent all that time making decisions together about the tunes and the arrangements and kind of like talking about what inspired the, so by the time you're actually recording you're way all on the same page together. I mean, when bands just come in and set up and you just start going, it's like I don't ever want to be fixing a song with the computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I just want the song in its most stripped down form to feel really strong so that everything we're putting on top of it is just like the good stuff not 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 fixing things but enhancing something that was already strong to begin with
0: absolutely so then what are some of the common mistakes that you would see artists coming to you in the pre-production stage with i think
1: one not having enough songs i think that is like the most most critical mistake i think that bands make like you know oh we need 10 songs we have 10 songs like the chances that you're going to write 10 songs and those are going to be the best songs that you, you know, I've seen it happen, but also I think that chances are that, that you're better off with 13, 14, 15 songs. You'll never regret having songs. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a good point. Like the other mistake I think it's, is that I think that um, often bands you know, make a record, and then they just they don't like like I tell bands all the time, you have, we just finished this, start writing the next record, because I think one of the reasons you often see like a sophomore slump is that one, your first record is you're you wrote you're writing all this stuff with no feedback from the world, right? You're just writing what you like, what you feel. by the time that comes out you know, the next time around, you're going to have reviews, you're going to have all these things that people like and don't like. And it's really hard to not like have that affect you and not have it kind of color the way you approach writing. So I think that changes. But the other thing is, bands will spend two years writing their first record, then they'll tour on that record for a year 18 months, and then need another record. And if they haven't been writing that whole time, they're then trying to recreate something in a six-week period that they had two years to do the time before. So, um, I I just try and remind people all the time that you write songs because you love music. You don't write songs just to have another record, right? So, if you're a musician and you love to create and it's your artistry, just write write all the time. Like, I actually try and write something every day. And then, at any point in time, if I need an idea or I have something, I have 300 voice memos of melodies or, like, a guitar lick or just something. I mean, so, I think that common mistakes are not having enough songs, not writing enough in, like, always and then i also think that i'm seeing more and more bands where they come in and the lyrics aren't done and the i mean lyrics to me are just everything i mean it's like such a huge part of the whole thing and like it, it, why you would leave something like that to totally like chance it seems crazy to me and also if the first time you ever sing it you're sitting there like holding your phone or your laptop <laughs> it's just hard to imagine it's going to be the the performance that you want documented f- for all time and eternity so i the other thing that is super different now is that so few bands have like great bass players and i think the bass It's the most underestimated, it's like my secret weapon on every record. You can transform a song with the bass. And, like, so often, it's like bands, you know, newer bands, it's like, oh, the guitar player is going to play the bass. Or, like, the bass player is like their friend that's like, was the merch guy or something. The fucking bass, man, it's so... Important and and I've uh, I I think it's like not as much of a focus as it could be.
0: So there is so much that you just said that I need to unpack with you (laughs) because stuff that I wanted to talk about because it was like you just perfectly summed it up in, in that there. But, um, yeah, like on the topic of bass, like that is the thing of your records that I've always admired and I you know I think makes your records really stand out. Like, you you always seem to have this way of getting your bass to sound really big and really clear and focused but it's not like most records i hear these days where everything's either super saturated or like you just hear tons of pick attack or like everything sounds like really woolly and like the low mids are all out of whack like so what's your secret for getting the bass and the low low end right like what are you doing are you I mean i use this tube tech eq
1: that's and i use like a really broad you know the Pultec style, like, boost on the low end. And then I use a really narrow, like, 1.5k mid-range on that. And it's like, it just cuts. It just cuts. It's like just the sweet spot that cuts through the guitars without getting that clicky thing. Because the thing, you know, everything has to have space. It's like, you have to find... Opportunities to have frequencies have their own places, of course, in a a mix and a recording. So that seems to always put the bass in like kind of a sweet spot, whether it's even like a picky, attacky thing, but even like fingers that just seems to be with this little box, it just cuts through.
0: Yeah, that, I, like that is the thing with your records that I've always just been like, how is the bass so big and like almost feels wide in your mixes? I don't know how to explain that. I mean, I probably
1: part of it is I just love the bass, so it's like it's not like I mean, I want to hear it. I want to. F- feel it and you know especially on like some of the stuff like on like a circus survive record or something where the guitars are s- like having the bass sound really great and having the bass playing be great and having the bass lines be great gives you so much more room to have other things be airy and light and colorful um if it's so the other thing is i typically just do two rhythm guitar tracks i'm not like uh we're going to do eight tracks with 10 different, I mean, I really try and keep it as simple as possible because I like hearing a little variation on the left and the right side. Like, I feel like it sounds wide. If you can get great tones, I feel like it sounds wider. And I like to hear the performance of the guitar player. Um, and I think not having mountains of the same shit doing the same thing on top of each other gives you space to hear the the bass and the leads a little bit better
0: for sure. And are you typically recording live amps with your bass, or are you just going D I always, always always live amps with everything? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will D I it
1: always because sometimes, you know, like bass players have a tendency to, to, to bend things and play hard. So if I have to, to, to tune the bass, for any reason it's way easier to tune the the DI and then reamp it but but that's it never sounds quite as good if you have to do that so I would prefer to not do that but if someone plays an awesome performance and it just happens to be a little sharp <laughs> or flat or whatever it is and I mean you know like I said I'm not I'm not like a purist by any stretch it's just I would rather get it right but if I need to fix it, well,
0: for sure. And like, I always find that when I listen to records, if you were to solo the bass on those tracks, that like the basses tend to sound more distorted than I hear them sitting in the actual mix. Would you say that that is the same sort of situation with what you, how you record basses? Do you tend to saturate your bass a lot? I do, I mean, yeah, I, I like,
1: I like, like, a little bit of a dirty bass, but I don't like it, I, I don't like it when it gets to the point where you don't hear that, like, kind of piano-y, rangey like, tone that, that, like, I want it to have, like, that colorful sound and not just become a mountain of hiss, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yeah, I, I, I think that, that, I feel like with the bass, you need to track it a little bit brighter and a little bit dirtier than you want it in the end to get it right, is what I what I have found. That's
0: fair, for so. sure. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you that ties into what you had mentioned earlier was just on the topic of lyrics. Um, I remember listening to you on another podcast, and you were talking about um, how... I guess you you had gone through a depression and you got through it by songwriting and that kind of helped you get to the other side through that. And in this particular interview, I remember you mentioning that um, someone had pointed out to you that rock songs tend to be very metaphorical with their lyrics and right. country music was very, like, to the point, very emotionally driven and that that had struck a chord with you. So... I was just uh i was wondering how that has affected the records that you make now and how much of an impact that makes on your production process and helping others with their lyrics especially if they're coming to you without finished lyrics
1: i do work with bands a lot on the lyrics um now like though i was referencing my own lyrics when i was talking about the country versus the rocks thing and again you kind of have to identify what what's right for the band you know like not like like anthony green from circus survive I, I don't think it would work to have him singing lyrics that like like i would write for my own my own band so it's like with the vibe of what they're doing the lyrics being drenched in metaphor is like perfect, you know, and the ambiguity gives you so much room to like find yourself in the words where I feel like with like hardcore and punk that is like just so in your face, there's like a really great opportunity to say exactly what you mean. Um, And I definitely, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't ever want to like micromanage someone's lyrics, but I, if, if they're just bullshitting and finding meaningless things that sound good, like I'll say that, <laughs> you know, because there's often a, an ability to fix that if there's, you know, like, and so, I mean, like, you know, I, I think lyrics are. I feel like there aren't that many records that I love long term that don't have really great lyrics. So if a if a I as a producer if someone's phoning it in and they're really not saying anything and they're just like finding words to fit the syllables but it doesn't have substance to it, I do feel like as a producer having that discussion is important.
0: Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the things. Um, so I know that you recently released a record of your own songs with the band Be Well. And um, man, that, that record sounds amazing, by the way. It, it's oh, wicked. Oh, thank you. Um, and and I think a major part of that record and the appeal of it is the honesty and the emotion of the lyrics. And I, and I feel like you definitely put it all out there for the world to hear and and you know i think that that does allow people to connect with it a lot better so yeah i 100% agree that like you know getting that emotion out there is is critical to you know helping helping people relate to a song and connect with it but i i think it it also is
1: like comes down to what we were talking about with like production approach and that stuff which is like what works for Be Well is super different than what works for Hot Water Music or Turnstile or Cave-In, you know, like the, I would have less gray hair if there was just an approach, a thing to do every time, (laughs) the right, you know, but there isn't, I mean, there's, it's art, it's feeling, it's emotion, it's storytelling, it's, there's, you know, there's, some parameters, and there's some overarching goals you can have, but ultimately, you have to let the artist speak, and and you have to push them when they need to be pushed, and challenge them when they need to be challenged, and also support them when, like, I can feel, if I say, do you think this is good as good as it can be? Yes. Like, it, when I get that answer, and I believe that answer, it's always their decision, right?
0: When it's like, oh, you can feel when they know they just called it in. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I love that question. That's a great question to put so- put someone on the spot with cuz it makes them really reflect on it. Yeah, but if an artist tells me, I fucking love it.
1: <laughs> that that's it. I mean, you know what I mean? Like ultimately, it's their it's their record. It's like it can't be about me. It can't be the Brian McTernan show and if you make it that, I feel like your lifespan of you ye- as a producer is going to be severely shortened because if the way that you can build a discography of really diverse and meaningful records is by believing in the artists, pushing them, but also listening to them and letting them drive the color of the record, let it be their record. Let You know, so... It's a balance between pushing people and challenging them and expecting the best from them and also backing off and giving them space to be who they are and challenging them to be more of who they are, to show more of themselves, to push themselves harder.
0: For sure, because, yeah, the process of singing, it's it's a very vulnerable thing. And, you know, these these are deep, meaningful lyrics, whether they're metaphorical or they're very blunt. Like, people are still telling their story, and I feel like singers are always very vulnerable with that kind of stuff. A lot of, pe- a lot of people want to protect it and not put it out there.
1: Right. Oh, I was just going to say, what's interesting about just having made a record of my own that was very, you know, revealing and personal is that... I actually, like, I, it really gave me a, a like, a really, like, clear understanding of what you just said about, like, the vulnerability of being in that booth and, and having the headphones on and, like, pouring your heart out. Like, I hadn't done that in so long. And <laughs> there's definitely, like, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, if some voice was coming over my headphones right now being like, that shit sucked. I would be so bomb So it definitely gave me a little taste of, okay, I, I may I may need to be a little more uh sensitive <laughs> when singers are in the booth.
0: Well, I was curious about that, like and how that experience has influenced the way you handle coaching singers now. But <laughs> it's helped. I mean it's helped. And um, and you know,
1: the thing is like I'm not, I don't have like pipes the way like Dustin from Thrice or, you know, like some of these guys have like I'm a I can make the most of what I got kind of singer. (laughs) So it it definitely made me, you know,
0: feel, you
1: know, have an appreciation for what people are going through on the other side of the glass.
0: Yeah. I I think that that is one of the biggest challenges with musicians, whether it's, whether you're playing an instrument or, or if it's just vocals, it's, it's still just getting somebody to, to actually feel their performance and, you know, making them realize that they, they can speak through their instrument or through their voice. And right you know well also kind of fig- i mean as a
1: producer figuring out like that some people like need like some people like going bit by bit some people like doing you know a bunch of passes and then comping it and then punching stuff some people like y- like you have to adjust the process to what makes the artist perform at their highest level and and like you know like like a perfect example like i don't know if you know strike anywhere but thomas he doesn't sing it the same ever like he never is going to sing it exactly the same so if you were to go okay we're just going to go line by line here you're going to miss a lot of magic where he's just going for it and something really special happens. But then there's other people where their voices can't handle that. And they don't like that. They want to focus on one line at a time, really kill it and move on to the next. And I think being, you know, fluid with like how you're willing to work and your workflow, I think is really important as
0: a producer. I think that's really cool that you mentioned how with strike anywhere, like the performances are different every time. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, I, I, I think I personally struggle with, when I when I work with an artist that is changing their performance or their lyrics or, you know, their part every take, it's like, well, what am I supposed to actually be hearing here? So, like, how do you find that balance of, like, knowing, like, okay, this is the right take versus, like, we've got five other variations, so, you know, which which is the right one? Trusting your ears. <laughs> <laughs> simple, simple, but to the point. <laughs> I mean,
1: you know, it's like... I just don't second-get. It's funny because in, in life, I, I'm a worrier. You know, I'm a, like, you know, if I'm going to build something or do something, I think about it. I I worry about it. Every little thing is, but when I'm working on music, if I hear it and I like it, I have to trust it. I have to, because otherwise, think about how many decisions get made over and over and over again. And And, like, when I get to the point where what I like isn't the good stuff, then it's time to do something else with my life. I mean, that is your job as a producer is to be able to hear it and know that it's the thing, you know, it's the band, you know, the, a guy like Thomas from Strike Anywhere, like he's got like kind of a ballpark of what he's going to do, but he's gonna, he's gonna go for it. And he's gonna like, do some things that are different and you have to catch it and you have to have with a guy like that a process that enables him to do that. I mean and it, it's a lot easier now with Pro Tools, but was, the first strike anywhere record we made changes of sound. That was all tape and man comping vocals, <laughs> comping seven vocals on on tape, you know, like I would pull all the vocal tracks up onto the console and then make all my notes, you know, take the lyric sheet and make all my notes about, like, this take of this, this take this, and then I'd run it all through the console back to another vocal track, like, basically mixing just it, sitting there, unmuting mutes, yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> and that was artistry, man. <laughs> you know, it's so <laughs> funny. Now it's like, I've got my playlist and I can just sit there, I can calm something in two seconds. But, um, like, for me, when I'm singing, I have to do batches of things multiple times and, and I can't, like, if I am trying to do a bit by bit, I always push too hard, I always blow my voice out, it's not, it just doesn't work for me. Um, but I don't, like, stray from the path the way Thomas might. Um, but, like, actually with the Be Well record, when, when I first record, I, we ended up, we recorded the whole record and scrapped it because we did it, it was too, we had hired a studio drummer and he was too perfect. And then I did my vocals and I did like line by line and there was just no emotion. And it was like, we finished the whole record and was like, I was just like, this doesn't do anything for this. Doesn't express the emotion of the songs. And we scrapped it and started over. And then the funny thing about it is like, even when you're tracking it, it's like, the drums are definitely not gritted at it. And when you're like listening to them by yourself, it's so hard to be like, <laughs> I'm going to leave
0: that. Like,
1: I can hear that that kick drum is rushed after the snare drum, but I just have to trust that when everything is on top of it, it will be soul, not imperfection, you know? And um, I don't know. It's it's just, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you do approach it that way of, like you can hear the mistake, but yet you're like, I'm gonna keep this anyway and let it let it play out. Let's see how it goes. And yeah, I mean, I guess it comes down to what is a
1: mistake, right? So like I always think about it like dancing, right? Like I don't want things to be totally on the beat. Like imagine watching someone dance on 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 the beat is there's nothing there, right? So When you see someone, you should be playing to the click like it's an instrument and you can, you can get a little ahead and you can get a little behind and that's color. And then the thing about drums is like kick drum drags a little bit or rushes a little as the bass hits it with it. It doesn't sound fucked up anymore. Yeah. So it's like soloing, like you were talking about with soloing the bass. It's like you solo the bass and make all your decisions without anything else in there. You're going to make mistakes, right? Like... Every time I start, like, really soloing everything and really trying to make everything perfect in a mix, my mixes get so bad. Like, it, it isn't soloed. <laughs> it's, it, it is in relation to everything else. And, again, you just have to trust that you know what you're doing and that when you hear it together, it's, you know, that it's going to be fine. Like that everybody's good player. So once this thing, that's a little, this or that, or like, like I don't ever track in the studio with the click on ever, because the thing is you should play to the drums, not the click. So if you grid edit the drums, then it's fine. But if not, it, you know, like, and it doesn't matter if the drums are pushing and pulling a little bit against the click
0: when you listen with the click, because the click's not going to be in the mix. Absolutely. Would you would you still give the drummer a click, but then you just don't listen to it? No, I mean I'll listen to the
1: click when I'm tracking the drums, but like when I'm comping drums and I'm editing things, I don't listen to it because I'm sometimes moving things off the I'm doing it by my ears. Like I, I I just I just have to trust that. I mean, if I don't trust that, I'm not gonna have any swagger or any you know vibe so i turn the click off once we finish and then and then a lot sometimes like the new strike anywhere we just didn't use a click i think on the turnstile record we just we didn't i know on the angel dust record i did we didn't use a click and it was like we started with click it just didn't feel good and it was like fuck it let's Get rid of this thing. I mean, there's no rule that you have to use a click. I mean, you have no better weapon than a drummer with amazing feel. That you want a record to fucking crush. That's your best, that's the best first step <laughs> is feeling, you know, in the performance
0: that everything's gonna get built on top of. Absolutely. That's 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 cool. I like I like that approach. And I definitely, you know, I I, I do find that I am guilty of the click being a, uh, a guideline, you know, but it, it is cool to hear that when you do have that flexibility, it, it gives you that, that raw feel. And, and I definitely have to implement that in some of my own records for sure.
1: I mean, I'll automate it in. So like it pops up and breaks and things like that, you know, when we're tracking, but I don't ever, I mean, I don't need to hear the fucking click. I have my ears. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I don't need to know how it is in relation to some fixed, some fixed, you know, computer yeah. thing that's happening.
0: Yeah, it's like that Guns N' Roses reference you mentioned earlier with like the bass being sharp. It's like, whatever, it sounded good. So it is good. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: you know, it's a fun, it's funny, but yeah, yeah.
0: So then, in your opinion, what ultimately makes a good song? Again, who fucking knows, right? It's just (laughs) the way it feels when you listen to it.
1: I mean, it's so funny because you, there isn't a rule book for a great song. I mean, it's like, it's a combination, it's so funny. It's like combinations of things that have been done a million times before in done with your own flair and feel. And you know, I just wanna like listen I wanna start it over. Like if if I if I if I'm like on a run and I'm listening to a demo and I keep like wanting to start that track over again, that's a fucking good song, right? <laughs> if I'm like skipping it, you know. 20 seconds in it's probably not
0: that's (laughs) that makes sense right it's like it all yeah if it moves you it moves you yeah i mean again wouldn't it be
1: great if there was like a rule like uh, this (laughs) is what makes things great but it's not i mean you know what i mean like even with like everything like singers it's like you know A million times people have come in with, like, these big, beautiful, strong voices. And then it's, like, singers that are, like, really struggle but have a lot of character and passion that really cut through. Like, people really identify with. So, I mean, you know, throw out the rule books on all of it, pretty much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Well, we've definitely talked a lot about um, keeping things raw and kind of adjusting your production style to suit the band and the artists that you're working with to get the best performances. And, um, I'm curious how that translates to your mixing process. Like, do you have, I know you, it sounded like you don't use templates, um, or maybe, maybe you do for certain things, but like, do you have a similar process that you use in every mix in terms of just like your overall like workflow?
1: Yeah. So interestingly, like in terms of like keeping things raw, like I, I'm a funny balance of things because on one hand I like to keep things like organic in the approach of making things but actually I want the records to feel very otherworldly. I don't want it to just sound like some dudes in a room with mics on them. Like so it's funny because it's like I really do want a lot of production and layering and color and effects and details t- to it. Um so but but in terms of mixing, I mean, I I still kind of mix even in Pro Tools the way I mixed on a console. Um, I don't use templates. The only thing that I kind of almost always do is like, you know, the like the kind of the drum busing and things like that. Is, is, I typically start in a similar spot with all that, but I try and do things a little bit different every time. I mean, I kind of find myself like anytime I'm putting a lot of shit on anything, I'm typically not making it better. So I often have to kind of like pull back out. And again, like the Pro Tools, you know, the plugins are great, but it's like, you know, hopefully the initial sounds were really good and you're using them to kind of augment something that was really strong. Um, And then, you know, like the way that I would uh, mix something of my own is really different than shit I get from other people, because I'm often, uh, stuff's coming to me to mix that wasn't recorded that well to begin with. Um, So, that kind of setup and approach is just totally different from, like, if I'm mixing something of mine, or, like, one of my best friends is Paul Levitt, and we work on stuff together. If I'm working on something his, tracks are going to be great. And so... I'm approaching the mix from like this was tracked with like a really smart, talented guy making great decisions. And I'm going to like first step is like enhance the vision of what they were going for and then see where we're at. Um, so it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's different. It's different every time. Um, definitely a very different, you know, approach to stuff that was recorded well for
0: For sure well yeah you have to you're you're just handling the you're processing the music in a different way because you have to you have no choice but to try to improve something that was crappy but i use pro tools even when i'm
1: recording like a tape machine and a con like i pretty much i don't use a template i don't have a bunch of like presets and I don't have I just don't I don't do it. I mean I typically like you know start with fucking around with the drums and get something that's starting to feel exciting to me and then start introducing things and almost always I'm pulling things up to like a good spot before I start EQing or doing anything to
0: anything. Yeah you're creating like your your kind of rough mix based around just the overall balance and levels of the yeah. instruments first. Well
1: and like you know with mixing if you get, once a drum starts sounding great, you realize you have to do a lot less to every, like great sounding drums make everything else sound way, way better. <laughs> so like, like I definitely like, like pushing the drums and using, you know, a, a lot of compression and some saturation and things like that. And again, it's similar to the bass in that, like the drums by themselves may sound a little like, you know, edgier, not blown out, but like, but once you start introducing everything else, that the the richness of the guitars and the bass eat up a lot of that. So it's like, um, you know, yeah. It's it's interesting.
0: It's funny that you mentioned how when you you find that you're adding too many like plugins to a track, that's usually when you're kind of getting further and further away from the the, the good stuff. And it it it's interesting how Pro Tools is like I always think about it when I'm using Pro Tools because you know, the first you have like your insert. Bar where it's like insert A to E, so you get your top five inserts, and it's like once you go beyond pl- like E on those plugins, like you know you've got too many things on there.
1: <laughs> I had this experience where did do you know who George Marino was? His uh, he he mastered a lot of records for me, and I, I the first time I ever went to work with him, I just remember every time he did anything, he matched the level of the mastered files to the to the volume of the unmastered file and you I could watch him go oh I'm going this isn't better sounding it's just louder you know what I mean like you can take like pushing the treble and like every time you add something it always sounds better and it's only when you pull the volume back and have it so that when you're like a being it it's you can't just bypass it and go. You know, like your ears always feel like louder and brighter is better. But then, like as you just start piling that on top of each other, it just becomes.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great tip. It, it's and it's totally true because when you do level match, sometimes you're like, oh, that didn't really make as big of an impact as it sounded when it was louder. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just find
1: like anytime I start feeling like, like, anytime I start. feeling feeling like I need to do a bunch of weird shit. Like, cause like a frequency is really bothering me or a ring or something is really bothering me. I need to just stop and take a break or move on to something else. Because when I feel like, at least for me, once I start like notching every little thing and like really like trying to like so fine tune every little thing to like these speakers in this room, that's when you start taking it other places and it's like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, this guitar is not in the tweeters in my car at all anymore because I did all this weird notching. So, I typically am trying to keep broader EQs on, like, not really get super surgical unless there's like a problem.
0: Yeah. And it's also funny that you said you mix like you did on a console, because that's one of the things I always think about is like when we're in digital, we have the ability to be super surgical about everything and add as many plugins as we want. But when you think back to how records were made on these big consoles, there was only like, you know, three bands of EQ. Maybe it may be a compressor on the board. You know, it was very limited. Whereas now we're just like, oh, we've got the tools. Why not just layer them all on? But the, the console days, it was just very simple and you had to make it work yeah. with what you had. Yeah. And you, and you know, you had to get
1: things pretty close on the way in. You know what I mean? Like it, it like most studios, even like the nicest studios, you didn't have, you're not going to have like 40 awesome compressor chains where you can just go crazy. And, you know, on, I mean, an SSL might have that. You're not going to put a
0: Fairchild on everything. It's
1: always <laughs> blows my mind. So, like, when a lot of the younger producer guys will come because they i would have people that would come in and track drums at my studio and they'd have like all their eq like all this whole template of the shit and then they're like at my room in a different room with the different mics and a different thing and just still running it through the exact same thing <laughs> and you're like i don't i don't get it but it's 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 the the console i mean there are definitely things that are better about working in Pro Tools. I, I mix probably 50% of the time totally in Pro Tools, and 50% of the time I have, like, a um, a summing mixer that Paul Levitt actually built for me. That's, like, an API-style analog summing mixer. And I use that sometimes. Like, this, not every time. I mean, kind of, like, depends on what's... One, it depends on how many revisions I feel like the band is going to have, because recalling, there are definitely some bands that would rather be able to make revisions forever and have a little bit less fidelity,
0: you know? And you can usually tell which bands those are from the moment you record them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or, like, you know, if I'm I'm listening to a mix and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm going, you you know, typically if I'm mixing... Other people's stuff, I will keep it all in Pro Tools because recalling everything is it's hard. And then sometimes, like like I just did this, um, no, this band Nova Charisma, I did three songs last year for Equal Vision, and I just felt like I felt like the tracks we got sounded so good. I just decided I'm not going to use any plugins on this, so I mixed it not on a console, but entirely analog summing, and outboard gear. And it was so fun. It was, and it sounds great. (laughs) And it's really interesting, actually, because they did three songs with me, three songs with Chris Crummett, and three songs with Mike Watt. And it's so cool how different all three, three batches are. But it was fun to just be like, you know what, we got this right, and I'm gonna just keep this... In this other domain here
0: that's amazing i yeah. mean that that is the goal right it's like they used to say back in the day with the console like if you can have that like meter stick mix where like everything just goes at zero and it's done like that that's like the dream right so it's it sounds very similar you know you just get the right tones and well know, you- it
1: was fun i mean it was like we didn't use any samples we didn't use any plugins like and it was like fucking cool man this can
0: <laughs> be done <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So then how do you know when you're done a mix? Usually when I'm at the point where I hate it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. I the thing is you you kind of like I only ever think things sound great for the first like hour or two when I'm mixing and then at there's a certain point listening to it over and over you just have to trust that when your head was the clearest and you were hearing it most objectively and making those early on decisions that you were making good decisions. And then there's typically a point where I start to feel like, oh, do the guitars need to come up? And then I turn them up a little and they feel too loud. Or the bass needs to come down a little and then it disappears. Like when you're at that point where like a microscopic decision you make feels like it's pushing things, um it th- then i feel like it's time to send it to the client um the other thing is i i typically like i i typically will send stuff i like when i feel like i'm 80% there because it it you know it, uh, the band may have had a totally different vision. And it's so it's so rare that, like, a band is actually around when the mix is happening. Like, in the old days, it was like they were always there. And now it's kind of like I'm, I'm going to get this to a place where I'm feeling good about it and I'm feeling like I want to get their feedback. And then typically by the time I get their notes, I've kind of, like, taken a break from it and gone back to it and I've tweaked some things and... Um, and, um, you know,
0: yeah, no point in like getting super surgical about it if they don't even like the the big vision. Right, right. So, but the funny thing is often by the
1: time I get their notes, I have made some of those changes on my own. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's funny. It's easier sometimes with a band you, where you produced it and recorded it. And, but the hard thing about that is because like, I've been recording for a long time, so typically the tracks I'm getting are pretty good sounding. The mix doesn't take that same, like, holy fuck step, because the tracks were pretty close, you know what I mean? So the band had roughs that sound great, (laughs) and then they want to have their mind blown by the mix. And it's like, you have to make sure you don't want to blow that rough mix away so bad that you make bad decisions. Absolutely. Where the flip side is when I'm mixing stuff for other people, it's typically pretty bad (laughs) sounding. (laughs) Not, Not always, but sometimes it's not awesome sounding. And it is fun to be able to be like, totally transforms something in in that way
0: it's like it's like the mastering engineer who you know just boosts like one frequency by like 0.5 of a db and they're done and like you know because they had great tracks to begin with like that's that's the goal right but then you get the other files where like you said like somebody sends you something that sounds horrible and it's like well fuck i gotta i gotta do
1: all my magic here well it's interesting with mastering because like i was talking about george marino before and like he did so much less to everybody at Sterling Sound was that way, where they they were like, We're not trying to put our thumbprints over this. We're trying to, and I loved him because he he would call me. He'd if I wasn't there, he'd work on a song or two, and then he'd call me and be like, hey man, this sounds great. And I'm like, oh. and he'd be like, Well, this is what I did. How is that line up with how you were feeling about? And if he's like, Oh, I added a bunch of low-end, and I'm like, oh, wait, I was I was kind of feeling like it was a little boomy to begin with. He'd be like, oh, well, let me look. Like, it was a very cordial, professional thing, and he wanted to know what I wanted out of the record, where, like, so many mastering engineers now they want to blow you away like i don't want to be blown away to be quite honest like i've been doing making records for over 25 years like if i'm not sending you a mix that's like pretty fucking close then you should be calling me and telling me to go back (laughs) in not try and fix it in the mastering because you know i mean you can sweeten things up you can do some stuff, but once you start getting like surgical with a you know, EQing the sides and the center and doing all this weird stuff, like other weird stuff starts to happen. And if you've put a lot of time into like the stereo image of a record and the panning and the details, and all of a sudden it comes back and everything's in different places, I don't want that. I mean. I don't, that's not what I'm looking for out of a mastering engineer. I'm looking for someone that's going to listen to it, respect the work that went into it and figure out if it can be enhanced to sound the way
0: I envisioned it in more places. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, that's uh, all amazing stuff there. And I I think the, the recurring theme of this is just like getting it right at the source, like knowing the vision and executing on it to get, to get that. And then Everything from there make, makes it easier. Yes. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Brian, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thank you so much for taking the yeah, time to, this to be on so here. Fun, this was a man. lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I could
1: love- talk about this stuff for hours, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, thank you very much. Okay, man. Thanks so much. So that was my interview with Brian McTernan, and that was super inspiring. I don't know about you, but I really got you're really amped up from that conversation. It was a ton of fun. And I just love his approach to making records. I love how, you know, he, he wants every record to sound different. And I love what he said about adjusting the process to fit the artist in order to get the best performance out of the artist as well. I really love that and I love his whole concept of just finding what makes a band special and focusing on taking their strengths to the next level and capitalizing on that and really just doing more of what works and less of what doesn't and finding a better solution to get the raw emotion and feeling and energy out of the band and capture them in the best way possible. So. I just really love everything he had to teach here today, and uh, it was really inspiring to hear what goes into his process. So, hope you enjoyed that episode as well, and. If you did, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on whichever podcast platform you listen to. That way you'd never miss any other episodes that are like this, where you can really get a lot of inspiration and learn from some serious pros. So make sure to do that. And also, if you're looking for more tips on how to create great productions from your home studio, visit MasterYourMix.com. And while you're at it, make sure to download the free Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is my cheat sheet for using EQ and compression in your mixes. And it's gonna help you get results really fast and it's gonna allow you to know exactly which frequencies to pay attention to on all the different instruments in your tracks. And I know that you're going to find it very helpful. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com. And that's it for today's episode, guys. I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.